We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, and welcome back to Women Worth Knowing. I'm in studio with... Jasmine Allnut. And I'm Cheryl Broderson. And we're so <laughs> excited to bring you another woman worth knowing. Yes, indeed. And who do we have today, Jasmine? Well, Cheryl, today we are going to be looking at Jeanne d'Albray, the daughter of Marguerite de Navarre, who we talked about in our last episode. So wanted to kind of didn't want to leave you hanging there. We're going to carry on because the whole family was pretty remarkable here. <laughs> and so we know Marguerite... Uh, had done a lot to protect and promote the Reformation in France. You might recall that we talked about that. So we're going to see today how Jean kind of carried on that legacy, carried her mom's torch, I guess. In fact, one uh, historian said that without these women, the Reformation probably would not have had as much of an impact on France because France was so strongly Catholic. And so the fact that you know, the Reformation had any impact there. A lot of that had to do with these women. They just haven't gotten a lot of attention because they were women. So it's interesting when you look, historians have talked about that. They recognize like usually people end up talking about Marguerite's brother, uh, Francis, because he was the king of France or Jean Bray's husband or her son. And we'll see why, because they were influential. But, you know, we forget that the women behind the scenes here were pretty amazing. So, you might remember Marguerite's dying words about her daughter were, God, I am sure, will carry forward the work he has permitted me to commence, and my place will be more than filled by my daughter, who has the energy and moral courage in which I fear I have been deficient. Okay, so that was kind of our lead-in here to talking about Jean. And I think Marguerite kind of undersells herself a little bit here <laughs> and her own impact because she was pretty remarkable. But her words were actually kind of prophetic. Jean was, as her mom said, a very courageous woman. A woman really of stronger conviction than just about anyone in that day. She just stood out. She was stellar in her relationship with the Lord among the French aristocracy. Remember, Marguerite had remained within the Catholic Church. And so she she did foster and promote reform for sure, but she stayed within. But Jean took it a step further and claimed Protestantism as her own faith. She decided to go all in, and she became the highest-ranking French woman ever to become a Calvinist pretty remarkable. And again, you know, let's go back to the fact that in the beginning, it was reformed. They just wanted to reform the Catholic yep, Church. So exactly. a lot of people weren't leaving. They wanted they wanted correction in the church itself. Mm -hmm. And then it became a protest. And yeah. again, like we said, I think it was last week, mm -hmm. that the word Protestant was given by the enemies, not the friends. Right. It was the, the Reformation. It was supposed to be, yeah, it was supposed to be reformed. It's just, and then over time, it started to become clear, like the church was not open to that. <laughs> right. And we're going to we're going to get into some of those oh, yes. battles unfortunately. Oh jeez, yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, today we're going to get into a little bit of that. So, but this was really significant because not only was she, you know, I guess you'd say more open than her mom. Again, I would not um, you know, denigrate Marguerite for not leaving the church. I mean, a lot of people did that, like Cheryl said, they were wanting to just bring reform. But it's interesting because, you know, Jean not only was more open and willing to take that stand and break away, but she also had more um, opportunity. She was a little higher ranking than Rene of France. So Rene did wonderful things, but it was helpful also to have somebody like Jean around. And it's in fact, it's really neat because their stories all kind of overlap and intertwine and you see them pop up in each other's stories, <laughs> which is neat because they all were kind of working towards the same cause, you know, the furtherance of the gospel in their kingdoms. And so uh, 
<clears throat> Kersis Jirna, I guess that's a biographer, she said, not only did Jean offer asylum to persecuted fellow believers as her mother had done, but she joined the Huguenots, the, the French Calvinists. That's, you know, I guess they're technically what they were and their army, and implemented the Reformation through legislation that condoned religious tolerance and freedom in the expression of faith, which was very unusual at that time. Religious tolerance, not a thing. (laughs) And you guys probably have already kind of started to figure that out with some of the stories that we've been sharing about, like Cheryl said, all the wars and a lot of the tensions between Protestants and Catholics. A lot of those tensions, of course, um, were political as well because church and state had been joined together for so many uh, centuries. And so you've got a lot to work through here um, (laughs) to make this whole Reformation thing happen. That same historian said that the hopes of the Huguenots in France were at their greatest during the peak years of Jean's authority. So it's not a coincidence that the Huguenots really were at their strongest during Jean's reign when she was able to really have a lot of influence and uh, support them, back them, you know, of course, um, financially as well as offer protection, all that sort of a thing. It's been said that she was the very nerve of the Huguenot resistance and one of the great heroes of the French Reformation, like I said. But Jean was humble enough to know her own weaknesses and her insufficiency. She actually was physically very frail most of her life. We think that she uh, struggled with tuberculosis, all kinds of things. But she really uh, leaned into God and his strength. And it's amazing. The Lord gave her an iron will, as we shall see. And that really carried her through so much opposition Um, As she's trying to navigate this world of, uh, you know, dead religion and then compromised Christianity, again, because of the connection of politics and religion, a lot of people were very much swayed by, you know, the political scene, and they didn't really have a strong enough faith to overcome that. But Jean did. So her story is actually kind of melodramatic. From an early age, she was made a political pawn. Um, She was born, sorry, I forgot to mention that. She was born in 1528. And so she is thrown into the political scene, obviously, from the time she was pretty little. Remember, her uncle was the king of France, Francis I, Marguerite's brother. And you might also recall he had taken Jean away from her mom when she was only two to be raised for a politically advantageous marriage. That's just what you did, especially if you had a a girl that was good looking. It was like, oh, sweet, we can use this one. (laughs) And so unfortunately, that was Jean's lot. Now, it was significant because Francis, you guys might remember, he and Marguerite were really close in spite of their differences in um, faith and beliefs and that sort of a thing. And so he was very tolerant of the things Marguerite wanted to do. And so he allowed Marguerite to choose Jean's governess and some of her tutors. And so that meant that she was getting early exposure to the Reformation and to the Bible and not just the teachings of the Catholic Church. So Jean was never as eloquent as her mom. You might remember her mom was a poet and an author and um, just very well-spoken. But Jean was well-educated, too. She was very quick, very intelligent, and very pragmatic, very active. And like I said, she had a really strong will, as we see. So because Francis wanted to use his pretty niece (laughs) to further his alliances. In 1541, when she was only 13, she was forced to marry Germany's Duke of Cleves. And so this is where her, you know, strong will starts coming out. Jean was so upset about this. She's like, oh, heck no. I'm 13. I'm not marrying this guy. You know, she did not like him at all. So the Duke of Cleves, was he related to Anne of Cleves? Yes. Okay. And that's what's really funny about this. Oh, I'll loop back to that. Yes. No, I can't wait. (laughs) I'm glad you said that. Okay, now I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah, there we go. So Jean is super independent. Mm -hmm. 
And she is just so upset by this that she said, no, I'm not going down without a fight here. You know, I mean, really, whenever these things were arranged, whenever these kinds of marriages were arranged by the king or queen, usually there was nothing anyone could do about it. It didn't matter how high ranking you were, you were still under the king or right. still under the queen. Right. And so really, she had no choice in the matter. But she said, well, that doesn't matter. I'm still, like I said, I'm not going to go down without a fight. So she protested to everyone. She wrote letters to the king petitions on her wedding day, they actually forcibly had to carry her into the church. <laughs> so it was like this super like demeaning thing that happened, you know, so she's, it's just this ugly scene. She gets dragged into the church literally against her will. Immediately after the ceremony, she fled home to Navarre and never consummated the marriage. And so uh, four years later, the whole German alliance had fallen through and Jean was able to get an annulment. And that is what's really funny is because, yeah, you know, this poor, yeah, this poor guy, Family. Germany, yeah, the poor Duke of Cleves, him and his sister had pretty rotten luck because Henry VIII did the same thing to her. <laughs> he sent Anne back. But later he, he sent gave Anne, Anne back. of Cleves to, um, he sent her back to Germany saying that she smelled bad. But yeah. then later he situated her in the palace at Richmond. Oh, good for him. And he used I guess. to go there and they would play cards together. Oh, that's right, because they became good friends, didn't they? Yes. It was more like, okay, yes. let's just be friends. It's let's not you, just it's be me. friends, yes. <laughs> and this political alliance, I don't want it after all. Yeah, exactly. So I guess Cleves just kind of, you know, okay. they just struck out on every level here. So Navarre, right, is on the border of yes. it's south of it's France. A buffer state. Right. And it's be it was between mm -hmm. um Spain, Spain and France. And France. Mm -hmm. So, Navarre, who does it belong to now? Do you know? Ooh, that's a great question. I actually thought of that because there's another territory that's going to come up here that I meant to look up before I started and I forgot. All right. You know, this whole situation here where, where Jean, like, you know, protests, where she runs away, d never consummates the marriage, and all of this stuff. And that was just not done. It was so unusual for a woman, yet alone a young girl. Remember, she's only 13 at this point, to take a stand like this and actually succeed and actually get her way in the end, I mean, that really shows the strong character that eventually we're going to see the Lord would channel into serving the cause of Christ, you know, later on, the, the strong again, will. the furtherance yes. of, the, of the gospel. It, yeah, it, would, it took a woman like this with such strong will. One biography actually suggests that this experience, the fact that she was forced into this unwanted marriage, played a role in the political and religious tolerance that she would advance in her kingdom's later on. So it's kind of interesting. This was kind of a traumatic thing for her to have this happen. And so she said, that's not going to ever happen again in my kingdoms. I'm not going to let that sort of thing happen. So at some point during that, oh, did you find it? It's in Spain. Oh, it's in Spain now. It's oh, in Spain. Okay. The Spaniards eventually yes. won out. <laughs> it used to be known as Pamplona. Pamplona. Oh, Pamplona. interesting. Yes. Okay. But keep so, going. No, no. This is good. <laughs> it helps everyone situate. Yes. So at some point during that four years, we're not exactly sure when or what happened, but this was around when Jean started to have a, a relationship with Jesus on some level. And it's thought at this point she started to really take on those Protestant ideas of reform. So uh, in 1549, though, a couple more years down the road, once again, she becomes a political pawn. Dun, dun, dun. But what happened was Francis had died at this point. Her uncle Francis, he had passed away. His son, Henry II, was now the king. And so Henry arranged uh, Jean's marriage to Antoine, the Duke of Bourbon, to help consolidate his territories. Now, her parents actually weren't super excited about this because they wanted her to make an alliance with somebody um, in Spain, obviously, because of their territory. It was right. in a 
tough situation there. Yeah, exactly, for security. But Jean didn't mind so much because apparently Antoine was a dashing cavalier, handsome, courageous, affable, gracious, and altogether charming. She's like, meh, I I think I can settle for this one. So, (laughs) and he was a Protestant supporter. So at the time it was like, okay, maybe this is a good good match. And so for a time they actually did have a, a very happy marriage. She bore five children. Only two of them survived, her son Henry, who will come up later, and a daughter named Catherine. Those are the Henry's only two that a lived. a good guy. Yeah, he will be a good guy. Yeah, a mo- moderately good guy. But moderately yes, he does some guy. good things. Yes, but compared to... <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Compared to some of these other people. Yes. So um, in 1555, Jean's dad died. And so that meant Antoine and Jean became the king and queen of Navarre. So they now took their, their place as heads of this kingdom. And by this time, Jean's heart for reform was really starting to emerge. And she actually wrote... Uh, Reform seems so right and necessary that for my part, I consider it would be disloyalty and cowardice to God, to my conscience and to my people to remain any longer in a state of suspense and indecision. So we see her, you know, again, in the midst of a lot of politically indecisive people, people that were kind of like eh, halfway in the Protestant, halfway in the Catholic, depended on the political environment. She was starting to realize, I can't be indecisive on this matter. I need to start taking a stand for what the Lord is calling me to do. And so this support for the Protestant cause would become a trademark of her reign, so much so that in 1563, Calvinism was made the official religion of Navarre. So, uh, But this is all around the time where things started getting heated up and very interesting in the French aristocracy. So remember, King Henry II, the son of her uncle Francis, he was the one who had arranged her marriage to Antoine. Now, he was married to a woman named Catherine de' Medici, who might be a familiar name to some people. Bad. Bad lady, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll find out why she's worth knowing just because of her bad. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, remember, we got to know, take the bad as well as the good, right? Learn from them, too. <laughs> So after Henry died in 1559, they had had three sons. Catherine had three sons. Uh, Francis II, that was Mary, Queen of Scots' husband. There it is again. So Francis II, Charles IX, and Henry III. All three of them ruled in succession, and Catherine was the political force behind all of her sons, especially because two of them were um, underage. They were really young when they took the throne, so it was very for easy, easy for her to kind of call the shots and be like, oh, don't worry, dear, I'll help you with this decision. <laughs> I mean, really, I was thinking about it earlier. I was like, gosh, this is like Athaliah in the Book of Kings. She is. It's she just is that same so kind of like, like Athaliah. yucky influence. And mm-hmm. yeah. Like the Baal, you know, as Athaliah wanted to turn Judah to um, Baal. Mm. So you've got Catherine Medici, who is, uh, what, do you, what do you want to call it? Uh, deviously, mm-hmm. um, dangerously loyal to the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, and working behind the scenes, mm-hmm. behind her sons. Because it was political, not spiritual. Exactly. And I think that's really important to bring out. It's political, yep. not spiritual. Yeah, exactly. And that's really what Jean's up against because she's a spiritually minded woman. Right. And she's dealing with people that were not spiritually minded. So um, Catherine was willing to actually tolerate the Huguenots for a time. At the royal court, a very short time, but she would allow them to come and preach and that sort of a thing. And so at this point, uh, Jean made a critical decision in her own walk with the Lord. And so on Christmas Day of 1560, all right, so this is the following year, uh, she boldly and, and suddenly, really kind of suddenly, out of nowhere, it seemed, decided to make a public confession of her faith, aligning herself with the Calvinists and saying, you know, nope, I'm, I'm going all in here, which was not done, like I said. 
And Sterna notes that Jean's conversion had not happened overnight. Remember, she had tutors that were reformed and she had been exposed to the Bible. Her mom was a godly influence in her life. This was a process of developing conviction over time. But apparently there was this moment here in 1560 when the Holy Spirit just prompted her to take a stand. And we know this because John Calvin, actually, when he heard about Jean's commitment and the fact that she had really just come out and made this statement, he wrote to her and mentioned, he talked about how God had powerfully acted on her in the space of just a few hours. And so, um, yeah, we don't know exactly what happened, but there was some moment, maybe maybe in time of prayer and reading the word, the Lord just told her, you need to take a stand now, Jean. And that's what she did. And so he also wrote in his letter to her, Madam, I urge you to prize the mercy of God, not only because he has rescued you in a flash from the shadows of death and opened your eyes to the light of life in his son, but also because he has implanted faith in his gospel deep in your heart, like a living tree that will duly yield its fruit. And so Calvin really wanted to encourage her like, hey, you know, you're you're doing this under the Lord. There's going to bear there's going to bear fruit. The Lord is going to work and move through this commitment. And he wrote to several of these French royals, as we've kind of mentioned already. And so, like I said, Jean's, you know, confession of faith was genuine. It was unwavering. And this stood in such stark contrast. Again, I can't really overstate that enough. This was in a day when most of the aristocracy were just political weather vanes. And, and Jean had this strength of conviction and a real relationship with Jesus that it seemed like almost no one else had. Again, there were people like Renee of France and her mom. There were a few isolated individuals. Interestingly enough, those were women, right? But it was so rare to find somebody with that kind of genuine conviction. Can so. I just give you a quick quote from mm. uh, Hunula in mm. Trial and Triumph, a mm-hmm. book that I highly recommend. But this is from Jean Albert. The reformation of the Christian faith is so right and so necessary that I would be disloyal and a coward before God and my people if I failed to join it. Mm. And then she embraced the Reformed faith because the Roman church has strayed far from God's word. That was her reasoning. And she said, I follow Calvin and the other Reformed preachers only insofar as they follow the scripture. Oh, I love it. What you see is it wasn't like she wasn't following just to follow uh, men mm-hmm. or the Reformed or even political alliances. Yeah. But this is where her faith in, in Jesus took mm. her. I love that. And that's actually a good point, too, because sometimes when we look back on history, we just kind of are labeling everybody, Lutheran, mm-hmm. Calvinist, whatever. Right. But the people in that time, that's not what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. They were, like you said, following them as they followed Christ. That was right. the main point there. And even these guys, you know, Luther and Calvin themselves, they didn't want to be have have some movement named after them. Calvin was buried in an unmarked grave because mm-hmm. he didn't want people to turn it into a shrine. Luther was really upset that people started calling themselves Lutherans. He yeah. said, I'm a poor stinking bag of maggots. He's like, I wasn't crucified for anyone. Don't do that. <laughs> right. And so they themselves didn't want this. But again, looking back on history, sometimes we kind of just think, oh, these people were just following men and these labels. No, the men themselves didn't want that. And so mm-hmm. they were just trying to follow Christ. So I'm really glad you brought that out. Because that was they heart. did not want the repeat of all the mistakes that happened yes. in the Catholic Church. They yeah. loved the Bible. They loved the yeah. Word of God. And they didn't want to disassociate, which was then mm. the only church, the only church. Yeah. So what they did was really remarkable. It really was. Yes. So This was Jean's stand. Again, a a really momentous occasion here. And, you know, at the time, like I said, uh, there was tolerance in the royal court. So this probably would have been okay. But by the end of the following year, which was 1561, the tide began to turn against the Protestants. 
including Jean. In fact, one biographer said that for the remaining 12 years of her life, she would be singled out as an enemy by the most powerful movement in Europe, the Counter-Reformation. Mm-hmm. And the Counter-Reformation, as you can probably guess from the name, was the, the Catholic response to the Reformation. This was where they started to push back once they realized, oh, this is dangerous. This isn't just some little, you know, tiny movement that's going to just fade away. There's something serious going on here <laughs> as people are breaking away. So... Uh, unfortunately, remember, again, Catherine had allowed the reformed preachers to come into the royal court and, and all of that sort of a thing for about a year. During that time, Antoine and Jean had heard all the same sermons, you know, and Antoine had been there and he had seemed to be a Protestant supporter, like I said before, when they got married even. And he had seen his wife's stellar witness here, but Antoine had no genuine relationship with Jesus. He was only half-heartedly supportive of the reform cause. And so he was always waffling between the Protestants and the Catholics based on political interests. Again, he was just like everybody else, sadly. Not only that, but he was infamously unfaithful to his wife. He was so just horrible. And he totally broke her heart. She was just so in love with him. And originally it seemed like, oh, this is mutual. Well, you said he was handsome and he was charming. Yep, and, and he used that to his advantage, sadly. Right. So he was a stinker. He didn't have a spiritual relationship at all. Uh, no. But it was a kind of a bummer, too, because he was really gifted. And he, yet he had no vision beyond himself and his own ambitions. And so he was such a he was such a waste. His life was a wasted life. It's really sad. He was just all around a very weak character. And that is such a contrast to his wife, Jean. When you read their story, it's like, my goodness, what a difference between these two. So uh, in 1561, that year, the Catholic Counter-Reformation is heating up and starting to spread. And Catherine de Medici starts to become very impatient and very frustrated with the Huguenots. She's like, okay, I tried to work with you people and you're not coming around. And again, because she's a political figure, she's not really worried about the spiritual side of this. And as you know, the Pope starts to become more aggressive, as the Catholic Church becomes more aggressive, she becomes more aggressive against them as well. And Antoine, being the way he was, he could read the writing on the wall. He could see what was going on. And so he said, oh, I'm, I'm Roman Catholic. It's fine. No big deal. He just threw his lot in with the Catholics and turned his back on the reformers. And so— Do you have the response that she she did? It was— Oh, yeah. When the, when they start trying to force her? Well, he planted a thorn in my heart. Oh. At his announcement, that's what she said. He planted a thorn in that my heart. That is so sad. I mean, here he is. Not only is he cheating on her, but then he does this. It mm-hmm. was just— I think that was just very like the, yeah. the thorn in the heart. Yeah, dagger. <laughs> that's right. Basically. And so he and Catherine tried to force Jean to go to Mass. But once again— Jean, remember, this girl, she's not going to mess around. Her commitment to the Lord was real, and she also had a very strong will. And so the Lord used this to give her strength to refuse to capitulate, even to her husband, who, like you said, I mean, this was a devastating thing for him to turn. And so out of love for him, she could have just said, okay, I guess I'll go Catholic as well. But her commitment to the Lord reigned supreme. And so she defiantly, I love this, held Protestant services in her apartments with all the doors open while everybody's going back to mass. So other people that maybe were kind of, you know, riding the fence, they all decided, okay, fine, we'll go to mass because Catherine is and Antoine is. (laughs) And she just said, nope, I'm going to just stay here and hold my services. And so one biographer said, when the queen mother Catherine de' Medici, tried to persuade her to accommodate her husband. She finally replied, rather than ever go to mass, if she held her kingdom and son in her hand, she would throw them both to the bottom of the sea. This was the reason they then left her in peace on the matter. (laughs) 
So it's like, okay, tell us how you really feel. If she's going to be that strong about it, then we probably should just back off. (laughs) Jean may not have realized it, but her strength, I mean, again, she's just taking a stand personally here and trying to really, I don't know, just honor the Lord in her faith. But what she probably didn't realize was that watching her take this stand really mustered the courage of the Huguenots. Here they are suddenly being persecuted heavily, and it's like, wait a minute, she's willing to take a stand among the French royalty? We can stand for Christ, too. And and I love that. That's such an encouragement, I think, because when we stand strong in Christ under pressure or in affliction, it really does encourage our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are watching. We might not even realize the impact that we're having. And I don't think Jean realized in the moment, later on she did, but in this moment, I don't think she realized that people were watching her and her stand for Jesus really just lit a fire under them. You know, even think of the Apostle Paul and how many times in his epistles he talks about how encouraged he is by seeing the other believers standing strong in their faith, the Philippian church, the Thessalonians. I mean, he's going through all of these intense trials to see their faith really blessed him. Okay, I've got a question. So when you said she opened her apartment, is this when she was in Paris? They would have probably been at the court at that time. Okay, because I was reading that he took her back because of Catherine Medici, took her to Paris, Mm -hmm. and there she was imprisoned in her apartment. Yeah. Oh, yes. And that was what he started to do. Yes. So initially, yeah, she was just holding these defiant services. But then as it became clear she was not going to cooperate, Antoine did begin to make life more difficult for her. And he did pretty much shut her up there in her apartments, um, took away their son. Wow. And then threatened to divorce her. In March of 1562, so several months later, the next year, Jean was able to get out because a civil the civil war started to rage between the Huguenots and the Catholics. And she was able to go back to Navarre and Biern and get away from that. Again, like you said, because Antoine had her pretty much imprisoned in there. So since, you know, these were her family provinces, uh, Biern was another territory close to Navarre. And her family also owned that that territory, I guess, oversaw, ruled that territory. And so once she was back there in Navarre and Biren, she decided, well, I'm going to just concentrate my efforts on reforming here. You know, I'll just be fruitful where I am. I can't obviously have much of an impact on the royal court at this point. And so she began uh, spreading the reformed faith there. As her health continued to decline, she just pushed through and persevered. That same year, Antoine was wounded in battle while fighting for the Catholics, and he died actually before Jean could reach him. But it's so sad because he actually had summoned one of his mistresses instead of her anyway. I mean, this guy, he was just low. So he turned out to be quite a punk. So I think this is probably a good spot to leave off here because at this point, Jean's going to start launching out into her ministry through her territories in Navarre and Biren and then move on into a greater role in the Reformation, as we'll see. So... This is all kind of a transition time here for her. Her yes. husband dies. She's just moved back to Navarre and Biern. And this is in the next episode, we're going to hear about how wicked Catherine of Medici was, too. <laughs> and you will see. So we want to thank you for joining us on this part one mm-hmm. of Jean Delbray. Jean Delbray. And we're going to say, please tune in next week because you do not want to miss part two. Talk about intrigue. Yes. Oh, Oh, so much intrigue in her life. There's more. (laughs) There's so much more. So again, if you have a woman worth knowing in your life, we'd like to just uh, give a quick shout out. And we recognize that every woman is a woman worth knowing. There's mm-hmm. a story with all of you. So even if it's you and you have a story that you want to share, we would love to hear it. So write to us at 
WWK at cccm.com. So we look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> Until next week. Bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.